tempting you. And that's what we're going to talk about is temptation. So James 1 and verse 12. <clears throat> Actually, verse 2. My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into diverse temptations. Knowing this, that the trying of your faith worketh patience, but let patience have her perfect work, that you may be perfect and entire, wanting nothing. If any of you lack wisdom, let him ask of God that giveth to all men liberally, and upbraideth not, and it shall be given him. But let him ask in faith, nothing wavering. For he that wavereth is like a wave of the sea, driven with the wind and tossed. For let not that man think that he shall receive anything of the Lord. A double-minded man is unstable in all his ways. Let the brother of low degree rejoice in that he is exalted, but the rich in that he is made low, because as the flower of the grass he shall pass away. For the sun is no sooner risen with the burning heat, but it withereth the grass, and the flower thereof falleth, and the grace of the fashion of it perisheth. So also shall the rich man fade away in his ways. And verse 12 is our focus verse. Blessed is the man that endureth temptation. For when he is tried, he shall receive the crown of life which the Lord hath promised to them that love him. Enduring temptation. And so in this sermon, we're going to see how to endure temptation. Some of the power that the Lord Jesus has given us in order to endure temptation. We're going to look at the example of how he himself endured temptation. And we'll see the limitations that God has placed on Satan through it all. So not everyone who says to Jesus, Lord, Lord, is going to enter into the kingdom of heaven. Not everyone in church is a new creation. Some are, some, some aren't. Some are wanting to be a new creation. Some are seeking to be justified by faith. And until a person's heart is changed, the person is the same, no matter where they go. And temptation is going to face every person. And so facing Temptation, enduring it, is how we get the crown of life that says in our verse, that the Lord has promised to those that love him. Overcoming or enduring temptation is how we prove to the Lord that we love him. And as we do, we get the crown of life, which I do see as sanctification. It's when Satan takes his best swing at you and you come out the victor. Temptation, the trial of man's fidelity, integrity, virtue, constancy, an enticement to sin or temptation, whether arising from the desires, internal or from outward circumstances, as, as with Jesus, or an internal temptation to sin. That's how Strong's defines it. And then to endure is, is to remain under. It's to be under a heavy load. So it's someone that upholds under that load. They don't fall under the weight of temptation. Blessed is he that endures temptation and remains underneath it. And upholds the weight of it. Some people look to David as their role model. And they formulate the conclusion at the end of looking at David's life. Even David, a man after God's own heart. The author of scripture. Even David sinned grievously. Therefore, what we, what, what we draw from that is everyone falls. That's what they say. Since David fell, you're going to fall. And when you fall, it's okay when you do. And they take their cues from David and it's no surprise when they do fall. Some people look to Joseph as their role model, and they formulate a different conclusion, one of tolerance, saying Joseph was strong in one area, but you know he was weak in another. He was proud. So you may be strong in this area, but you're weak in another area, so, so you don't judge. 
And that's, that's their takeaway from it also. They conclude tolerance is the, is the lesson from Joseph. You've got your own sin, they've got theirs, everybody's a different shade of gray. And how damaging is it, though, to use David to justify one's own sin or Joseph to justify someone else's? And in both cases, overturn the whole intent of Scripture to live a holy life before God. All of Scripture drives a person to that point. Scripture doesn't drive a person to faith. And even if it did, the purpose of faith is to live a holy life. So many get that wrong today. It's, it's in order to walk with God. What good is a supposed faith if a person isn't walking with God? They have no inheritance unless you walk with God here. So we can learn from David, we can learn from Joseph, but our role model is neither one of them. Our role model is none other than Christ Jesus the Lord. He's the one to we look, the one to which we look, the one that's our role model, the one we take cues from and, and emulate. Hebrews 2.18, for in that he himself has suffered being tempted, he is able to aid or help those that are tempted. And Hebrews 4.15, he was in all points tempted as we are, yet without sin. That is our goal. And our scripture says, blessed is the man that endureth temptation. For when he is tried, he shall receive the crown of life, which the Lord has promised to those that love him. And so what he turns me to look for, this is Jesus' temptation. <clears throat> this is where we take our cues and learn to overcome <clears throat> so notice, at the, at the end of, well, midway through Luke 3 and verses 22 and 21, that Jesus was tempted after a great spiritual victory. Luke 3, 21, when all the people were baptized and it came to pass that Jesus also was baptized and while he prayed, the heaven was opened and the Holy Spirit descended in bodily form like a dove upon him and a voice came from heaven which said, you are my beloved son and you I am well pleased. Great spiritual victory. John the Baptist testified about Jesus as the Messiah in John 1, 29 and 34. Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is the Son of God. Heaven was opened over Christ. The Holy Spirit came down upon him. The Father spoke from heaven. He was as sanctified as anybody could ever get to be. And right away, he was led into the wilderness into temptation. And your temptation might be in a similar way. It might be after you have some great spiritual victory. Don't think that it's all behind you. Spiritual victories are great. Look at, look at what happened with the Lord Jesus Christ in that moment. What a marvelous thing to see. And then the Holy Spirit led him, drove him into the wilderness. But notice this. God, didn't, God the Father didn't let his son face the wilderness temptation until he was fully ready. Until he was filled with the Holy Spirit. The lesson here is don't think even for one second that you can't hold up to your temptation. God won't let that happen. 1 Corinthians 10 and 13, There hath no temptation taken you, but such as is common to man. But God is faithful, who will not suffer you to be tempted above that you are able, but will with the temptation also make a way to escape, that you may be able to bear it, to hold up underneath it, not be crushed. What father would put his kindergarten son into play head-to-head -head competition against high school varsity? Well, nobody would. What, what father of a 16-year-old learning to box would put, put his son in a ring with Mike Tyson? Well, nobody would. And God's a perfect father. He doesn't put his children in situations that they can't handle either. God has Satan on a leash when it comes to temptations. 
for the son or daughter who's walking in obedience to God, but for the sons of disobedience who willingly, knowingly go into temptations while they go out of the way of God's protection. It's those who are sober and vigilant. Those, like our verse says, that endure temptations are to the one that get the crown of life because they love him. So for the obedient son and daughter, Satan can't go beyond his leash. He can try and try and try, but he'll never be able to tempt you more than that which you are able. And Satan loves his temptation on Jesus in Luke chapter 2, or 4, verses 2. And 4.1. And Jesus, being full of the Holy Ghost, returned from Jordan and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness, being 40 days tempted of the devil, 40 days full of temptations. In those days he did eat nothing, and when they were ended... He afterward hungered. Satan uses every opportunity to tempt. In those 40 days, he didn't, certainly, he didn't wait to the very end of it, but he looks like from the text that he launched his greatest strike at the very end in these last three ones. His biggest guns he reserved to, the, to when Jesus was the most vulnerable. Infirmities of the flesh, he was physically depleted. He'd been fasting for 40 days, and then it, Verse 4, afterward he hungered. Verse 2, so after three to four days, the body of fasting, the body says, okay, now I understand the new regimen. I'm going to quit, quit telling you that I'm hungry. The stomach says, that's it. I'll just stop telling you. And then about 40 days into it, then you get to be hungry again, they say. And basically the stomach is saying, look, we're at the end of our rope. If you don't feed me now, there may not be a tomorrow. And so Satan launched his three strongest temptations, not on day one or day two or day three, although I'm sure those were filled with temptations too. That's what our text indicates. But he launched the three greatest ones right at the end. And your temptation will also likely be patterned in a similar fashion when you're the most vulnerable. So in Jesus' temptation in the wilderness, Satan came to Jesus and tempted him. And the point here was trying to separate Jesus from the love of God. Keep yourself in the love of God. His scripture tells us. He, by, he, and he tried to do that separation by trying to get Jesus to sin. In verse 3. And the devil said unto him, If thou be the Son of God, command this stone that it be made bread. He's saying, prove it. You've got some pretty big shoulders here from what I hear down, from down at the river. Show us that you're the Son of God. Prove it. So how would it be sin if Jesus would just Tell the stones to turn into bread. Have you ever wondered that? Is that breaking a commandment to turn stones into bread? Any laws of God or precepts or anything like that? What's so wrong about making stones bread? Well, number one, because the Father didn't tell Jesus to do it. Jesus would have been listening to a voice other than the Father's voice. He would have been listening to Satan's voice and following Satan. Herod said to Jesus, I've heard you can do miracles. Do a little miracle for me, he said. And Satan was saying, I've heard that you're the son of God. Prove it. Do a little miracle for me. Prove it. Treating Jesus like a puppet. And if he'd taken the bait, then he would not be able to say scriptures like, I do only those things that I see my father do. I say only those things that I, that I hear from my father. He'd have to concede. But you know, sometimes actually I do listen to Satan's voice and I do what he tells me to do. He would have been a servant of Satan. No, friend, Satan is to be resisted no matter how innocent the suggestion might seem. Once you feel or notice or discern even the slightest hint of impropriety, the slightest implication of a path that departs from holiness, 1% of truth mixed with error, just a pinch of toxicity, then you need to leave. You need to get out right then. Rescue your soul because you're in danger. 
The Lord Jesus said, my sheep hear my voice and they follow me. They won't follow another. And if you're listening to the voice of Satan and, and obeying him, even in things that may seem little and innocuous, then you're not following Jesus. His suggestions may seem innocent. And if they do, then they're only to cultivate you into bigger and bigger sin because they're in disobedience to the Father. So number one, the God didn't tell Jesus to do it, so it would have been sin because it's to depart from the glory of God. It would be to live, to do something apart from what the Father told him to do. To start taking plays from the enemy's playbook instead of God the Father's playbook. And then second, Jesus would have been meeting his own needs. So Jesus was hungry. After 40 days, anyone would be. So doesn't it make sense that Satan would appeal to his appetites? Trying to make Jesus discontent with God's provision of food? Jesus had appetites of the flesh, food and sleep. Like we learned a while back, it's not the flesh that's evil, it's the body of sin that inhabits flesh that's evil, that causes the flesh to do, to do sin. And Je but Jesus had just straight, regular flesh. Hebrews 5, 7, Jesus, who in the days of his flesh, he had flesh. And as human, as human flesh, he had needs that spiritual beings don't have. So in this temptation, Jesus, Satan was saying to Jesus, look, you're a man, and a man has needs. And God isn't meeting your needs. You must be so hungry right now. And look, God hasn't given you anything. But you know, you can fix the problem. You can fix it yourself. You don't need him. Stretch forth your own hand. Use your own heavenly power. You just turn those rocks into bread. That's not too difficult if you're the son of God. Satan appealed to Jesus' fleshly human needs, trying to make Jesus discontent with God's provision in order to meet his own needs. So to understand this, this interaction here, you have to understand how Jesus lived in this world. And the, the short version is this. Jesus did not use his own heavenly powers of divinity while he was on earth. No, he laid those aside. He created the world and his word upheld the world, but he didn't use those powers while walking as a man on earth. Well, how did he do miracles, you say? How did he know what was in people's thoughts? Well, through discernment from the Holy Spirit given. Through miracles, through the power of the Holy Spirit who was given he stayed within the God-imposed constraints upon him. He acted in no way outside of those. He did not use his divinity, Hebrews 2.17. Wherefore, in all things it behooved him to be made like unto his brethren. And Philippians 2.8. Being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. What does it mean to humble himself when he found himself as a man? That he limited himself to the constraints of a man in his earthly bodies. Those are the constraints imposed on him by God the Father. In the Wesley hymn, it says, he emptied himself of all but love and bled for Adam's helpless race. He only did what he saw the Father do. He only, he did nothing of his own will or power. And it does, and it does not align with Jesus' purpose of being our example if he were to have stretched forth and used his heavenly divinity powers while on earth. How could we follow somebody when they, they play by a different set of rules. If he just reached out and you took that and used it for whatever he wanted to, and he's supposed to be our example and our role model and we're supposed to follow him, how can we follow him in doing those things? We don't have access to, to divinity. No, he limited himself and so he could be our role model, so he could be our example in all things. 
The Lord Jesus is the author and finisher of our faith. First, he wrote the book on how to live out the faith in, in the right way, God's way, in purity and holiness. And then second, he came us to show us how to do it. And so he patterned everything in his life after, the, after God's book. And we're to pattern ourselves after him. So the Lord Jesus, to be our example, didn't use his own powers. So we, can just, we can't just write off those things and say, well, he did it because he was the son of God. No, that's cheating. That's breaking the rules. He's supposed to be your and my example. And God's, through the Holy Spirit, can empower you to live just like him. You see, how could Jesus tell somebody else to trust God when, like the birds and the grass do, receiving good from the Lord's hand for like clothing and food if he himself didn't do it? He tells you to trust God while he himself makes his own bread? Well, that doesn't work. He came to show exactly how to live the human life in accordance with God's will. He knew he had to be made like his brethren in all things so he could show us the way. That way he could truly be our example. Jesus, had, Jesus did miracles as directed by God the Father and empowered by the Holy Spirit. He had wisdom that he received from scriptures as taught and interpreted to him by the Holy Spirit. Jesus had discernment on what people said or thought by the Holy Spirit. And he didn't, John 2, 24, but Jesus did not commit himself unto them because he knew all men. That's to say, he knew that all men were evil. That they have a heart that's Deceitful and desperately wicked. He didn't have to know anything else about a person. He knows everybody has that stamp on their heart. In John 2, 25, And he needed not that any should testify of man, for he knew what was in man. That is to say, he knew that each man had a body of sin. And that any, any testimony that another man would give of Jesus would be, could not be relied upon because it comes from a heart of sin. So Christ limited himself to the constraints imposed by God the Father. So what's the application for us? To limit yourself to the boundaries that God's imposed upon you. To not go beyond the boundaries that God's placed for you. Stealing is terrible because it's, it's a distrust that God will meet your needs. It's to go beyond the boundaries of others and the boundaries of God to meet your own needs. Coveting is terrible because God will meet the needs of his people. And coveting stirs up discontent with the boundaries that God's placed for you in meeting your needs. The unworthy is terrible because God will meet the needs of his people. You're not to go beyond the boundaries of God meeting your needs. That's to say, God, you're a bad provider. I want quail, and you haven't given me quail. I'm going to get quail on my own, whether you like it or not. Why live in purity until you're married? Because God meets the needs of his people and you're not to go beyond the boundaries that God's defined for you and meeting your needs. At the right time and not before, God will give you a tree to eat fruit from. But to try to meet your own needs before that is to pervert God's way. Why is the A word so terrible? Because God will meet the needs of his people. And you're not to go beyond the boundaries that God's given to you. In marriage, God gives a person... A tree to eat from. One, one tree. And he grants access to no other tree. He expects a person to eat from that one tree for their life long. There's, although there's plenty of other trees out there, the test of whether they're actually in the faith is do they stay within the boundaries God's imposed on them? 
God imposed a simple boundary on Eve to not eat from one tree and she could eat from any other. And Eve disobeyed. She could have eaten from any other tree in the whole garden. But for some reason, she couldn't get her eyes off of this one tree that was outside the boundary. She could eat of any tree. But the one she wanted more than any other was the one that's outside the boundary, and that's always the way sin goes. There's always another tree that's off limits. And so it is with sinners. First Thessalonians 4, 3. For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you should abstain from sexual immorality. With marriage, those other trees are not for you. You have your tree, your very own tree. And you can eat from that tree all the days of your good life long. But those other trees are somebody else's trees. They're off limits to you. Oh, but I'm tired of my tree, you say. I want a different tree. I want to go beyond my appointed portion. That's to despise God himself. To break his rules. To become the object of his wrath. 1 Thessalonians 4, 6. That no man go beyond and defraud his brother in any matter. Because the Lord is the avenger of all such as we have forewarned you and testified. That is such a great verse to have in your, tucked in your heart. To the fear of the Lord will put, if you want the fear of the Lord, you memorize that scripture. And God will bring it to mind from time to time as you need to hear it. It's, it's proof that God is the avenger of all such. He doesn't, he doesn't push it away like sweep it under the rug. It's no big deal. No, he's the avenger, not of some such, of all such. Instead, instead of, so many, some, sometimes people go out a boundary, they're wanting to go outside a boundary and say, oh, I want to meet that person, I want to spend time with that person. Well, the question is why? That only comes from one of two places, either the lust of the flesh or from the Holy Spirit. And is it really a coincidence that the one you want to spend time with is handsome and beautiful? Or is, or is your reason because of that? I've seen it probably a thousand times, and it always happens in the same way. The lustful heart is always attracted to beauty, just like a moth is attracted to light. Instead, pray that you wouldn't be led in. Instead of seeking to have the temptation paraded in front of you, seek that you would not be led into temptation. Instead of playing at the den of the viper, instead of stepping into the snare of the fowler, I'm teaching you how to overcome sin because your eternity is at stake. Rescue yourself. Run away from temptations. As long as you run to temptations, then you have no part nor lot with Christ. You're distancing yourself from him. You're not drawing near to him. James 4, 7. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Draw nigh to God and he will draw nigh to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. But people do the opposite. They resist God and they draw near to sin. How, how, do you, how do you expect God to draw near to you if you're departing from him? The scripture is too true. If you draw near to God, he will draw near to you. There's only, if you feel distant from God, there's only one reason. And if you're losing the battle of sin, there's only one reason. God's been so very merciful thus far in your life and in mine, but he's promised no mercy for those things. Did you not hear that verse? God is the avenger of all such. Does it sound like there's mercy in that? There's not. Will you not hate the garment that's defiled and spotted by the flesh? 
Why are you trying it on again for size? You know where those things lead. And if by chance temptation draws near, if you're a man or a woman given to appetite, Proverbs 23, put a knife to your throat if you're a man given to appetite. Friend, if you want spiritual life, you must put away the, the, the flesh, the lust of the flesh. Don't indulge it. You must put to death the old man. Don't feed him. You must nail him to the cross and leave him there until he stops wrestling and squirming and pleading. Until he has no more life in him and he has no more pull on you. Instead of living for the flesh with its affections and lust, crucify the flesh with its affections and lust. So Satan appealed to Jesus' fleshly human needs and trying to make Jesus discontent with God's provision and meet his own needs. And Satan will appeal to your needs too. To try to make you discontent with God's provision for your needs so you would go beyond the boundary that God's placed for you to meet yours. And to do so would be to fall for Satan's trick. And that may seem like a small thing, but with the parable of the seed in time of temptation, those ones fall away. They fall away from the faith. That's not a light thing. There may be no path back. But the Lord has promised that no good thing will he withhold from those who walk uprightly. You will never have to try to meet your needs. Because God will see your prayer from afar off and the answer will be on the way before you can even pray it. Lamentations 3.25 The Lord is good unto them to wait for him, to the soul that seeketh him. In following Christ's example, in his first temptation, we're to limit ourselves to the boundaries God has imposed on us. That's, that's what it means to love God with all your heart and soul and mind and strength and not transgress his boundaries. And, and to love our neighbor as ourself would not transgress his boundaries. To transgress such boundaries is to cast all of God's, to, is to break God's commands, to cast his will and desire behind us, to step on it, to spit on it, and to do the same thing with our neighbor. Oh, there's no love in that. There's hatred of the neighbor for that in that. And God will avenge. So how did Jesus overcome this temptation? By pointing to Scripture as the authority for his life. Satan was appealing to Jesus' appetites, trying to make Jesus discontent with God's provision of food. And Jesus points and says, Jesus answered him in verse 4, It is written that man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word of God. That comes from Deuteronomy 8.3. It's about God feeding his people manna in the wilderness so that they know that a man doesn't live only by bread. God says, I'll give you the bread. Your job is to follow me. To live, to have life by every word that comes from the mouth of God. They were learning obedience, to live in conformance with God's will. And manna was their daily portion that God gave them just as a master would feed an apprentice who was learning their trade. One omer per day per person. Don't gather more and don't gather less. Exodus 16, 15. And two omers on Friday for the, for the Sabbath. Don't gather on the Sabbath. And the people had to learn that, and they learned the hard way. Obedience to every word of God, to every word. That's what it takes to have spiritual life. Malachi 2, the priests were partial in the law. They taught and liked some of it, but the hard parts they left off because they're distasteful to the people, probably. And that's to disobey the law, that's to damage God's law. But to obey in all things, that's what God requires, Matthew 28, 20. Teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you. Whatsoever I have commanded you, Jesus says. 
In Christ we can obey in all things. And that results in spiritual life. Romans 8, 4, that the righteousness of the law might be fulfilled in us. To walk not after the flesh, but after the spirit. By walking in the spirit, and there's so much confusion on what that is today. But by truly walking in the spirit is, when, is to have Christ abiding inside of you. And he will never transgress God's command. And the righteous requirements of the law will be fulfilled in that person who's Christ in them is the hope of glory. So, G so Jesus redirected the conversation from physical life to spiritual life is what he's doing. <clears throat> and Jesus' answer, maybe if we were to, to tease out what he's really saying to Satan, he's saying, God's word is my daily provision and my daily strength. You're trying to entice me using physical and fleshly appetites, but I will not be ruled by fleshly appetites. It's not physical life that matters to me. It's spiritual life that matters to me. And since a person cannot have spiritual life without obedience to every word of Scripture, therefore I am determined that I will obey every word of Scripture. Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. God's word rules over my appetites. And my appetites will be in subjection to God's word and not the other way around. Paul lived by the same rule, 1 Corinthians 9.27, but I keep under my body and bring it into subjection, lest that by any means when I preach to others I myself should be a castaway, and that's castaway from the faith. So for you and for me, God's will is that each person would have spiritual life and would be obeying every word of Scripture that comes from God's mouth. To not be ruled by physical appetites, that's, this is called sanctification. That every appetite would be conformed to God's provision. Here's a need, God meets it. There's a hole, God fills it up. Always knowing that God will provide for the needs of his children, but I will not be brought under the power of any one of those needs. Temptation number one, providing for your own needs. Temptation number two, take the easy way. Verse 5, and the devil taking him up into a high mountain showed unto him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. And the devil said unto him, all this power will I give thee and the glory of them, for that is delivered unto me and to whomsoever I will, I give it. If thou therefore wilt worship me, all shall be thine. <clears throat> the devil showed him. Another way it could be Interpreted is he exposed to the eyes. You know, some things just have to be seen. And temptation is like that. There's some temptations that don't come in full unless you get the visual package. And in verse 5, all the kingdoms of the world, and that word world is the whole inhabited earth, the world. It's not, it's not cosmos, it's the whole inhabited earth, the world. And in a moment of time, that seems to indicate that in that moment of time, the kingdoms of all the ages from that time to the end of time were all brought before Jesus' eyes. In verse 6, all this power, exousia, authority, to have rulership over it, and the glory of them, the magnificence and excellence and prominence and dignity, their resources and wealth, the greatness of their cities and fertile lands, their thronging population, all of this I'll deliver to you. Notice Satan didn't tempt Jesus with lust or pleasure. Now that doesn't work for a man who has no sin nature. Those temptations are detestable to Christ. 
and they're detestable to those with the sanctified heart. And he didn't tempt Jesus with wealth or ease of life. No, that would have attracted, that wouldn't have meant much to a king who's about ready to go and sit on his throne. Wealth, he's going to inherit everything. But he tempted some, Jesus with something that Jesus had affinity for, the, kingdom of the, the kingdoms of the world and their glory. Because Jesus knew that he would inherit the kingdom and later all the kingdoms and the glory thereof. The Lord Jesus, how did he know this? Because scripture taught him. Psalm 2, 9. Thou shalt break them with a rod of iron. Thou shalt dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Talking about the other nations. The Lord Jesus knew that was talking about him. He knew that in Luke 24, 7, the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified and the third day rise again. How did he know that? Because the scripture taught him. And in John 3, 14, and as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so the Son of Man must be lifted up. He knew these scriptures were about him. When he read or heard the Bible, the Holy Spirit would quicken to his understanding every part in its greatest detail. It's like as if everybody else is walking around blind or maybe with just a barely dim little teeny bit of sight, whereas Christ the Lord sees the full panorama and technicolor everywhere. How else could it have happened? That he could come to a true and accurate conclusion about everything in Scripture? Conclusions that nobody else even knew? He didn't learn it from man, that's for certain. He wasn't taught by a human teacher. No, God himself was his teacher through illumination of the scripture as he read and as, as, as he read or heard it. So everyone else reads the Bible from a place of at least some form, some measure of spiritual darkness until a great spiritual darkness until the day dawn and the morning star rise in your heart, according to Peter. But even then we still see through a glass only darkly, as it says in Hebrews. But Christ the Lord, all things were naked and open unto the eyes of him with whom we have to do. The Holy Spirit would point out every detail of Scripture that applied to him. So he knew he would one day rule over all the kingdoms of the earth. And Satan was appealing to his knowledge and expectation. And he was saying, you can get there a better, faster, cheaper way. A way without all the pain. And look at how Satan presented this appeal by means of Jesus' senses, his eyesight. It's really important in the scripture. He showed unto him in verse five. Temptation has its greatest power when it's shown and brought near. Satan knows the power of visuals, visual appeal. And so he used that in this case to make the temptation to be so much more appealing. Take a person and Tell them to do some sin and offer them a, or break a law and offer them a million dollars and they may or may not do it. But take a suitcase with a million dollars in it and open it up before them. And that all of a sudden becomes a mouth-watering thing that they curb appeal that increases drastically. So maybe the Lord Jesus Christ saw England in all her glory under, the, under King Alfred the Great. Maybe Spain with her Grand Armada, maybe the British Empire on whom the sun never set, maybe Charlemagne, the medieval emperor over Germany, Spain, and France before he split those places up into three areas and gave one to each of his sons. Maybe he saw the glory of Rome, maybe he was shown 
the Chinese mighty Ming dynasty that built the Great Wall? Maybe America's expansion westward and her rockets roaring into space in the 60s? Maybe the Soviet Union, to name a few? And maybe even the glory of the world under the Antichrist. In verse 6, he showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he says, I'll give it to you. I can give it to whosoever I desire to give it to. And all it will cost you is one simple bow. In verse 7, if thou wilt worship me, all shall be thine. Worship is proskuneo, render homage to, and it's the aorist tense. You know what that means? It's a one-time event. The same word, worship, was used of the wise men that came from the east to worship the babe, Jesus. The same word that's used for the leper that worshiped Jesus in Matthew 8, 2 and was healed. The same that the disciples worshiped Jesus when he stepped into the boat and calmed the sea in Matthew 14, 33. And the same word when the mother of James and John made her request to Jesus about one son to sit on each side of his throne. Those, those examples don't seem like they're really that big of a deal, so it wouldn't be that big of a deal maybe for Jesus to do that same measure of homage to Satan. That was, that was Satan's intent. That was his appeal. He was appealing to Jesus' good senses. Why die if you can get the same end without dying? Maybe Satan, there's scriptures that indicate that maybe Satan didn't understand the atoning death of Christ. Or maybe he did and he was trying to avert Christ from it. But he was trying to avert the Lord Jesus from God's plan. He was trying to get him onto an alternate road. He was saying, let's be sensible about this. You can still have your intended end, but why not get it the easy way? <clears throat> But Jesus had to stay the course, otherwise he could not be the propitiation for the sins of mankind. He had to go to the cross. And Satan's appeal was couched in their location, too. Where are they? They're in the wilderness. Who's going to see? One small bow in the middle of the wilderness? Nobody's within miles of this place. It'll be secret. Nobody else will know. Satan made the dividend as great and as grand as he possibly could, and he made the price as small as he possibly could. One small bow in secret in exchange for rulership over the, all the kingdoms of the world for all the rest of time. And Jesus, in verse 8, answered and said unto him, Get thee behind me, Satan. For it is written, Thou shalt worship the Lord thy God, and him only shalt thou serve. Satan, he's bringing up the fact that Satan is his adversary, the adversary of God. This is the only one that he brings out his name. And, don't, and he, he's, he's reminding both of them that Satan was his adversary. Get thee, the drawing out of the, that, that word definition is to withdraw yourself or to go away or to depart. Get thee, to depart away, behind me, out of my sight, is another way to render that. You and all your paraphernalia that you've brought to show, all your visual displays and PowerPoint charts and kingdoms this and all of that, all that paraphernalia, get it out of my sight. The Lord Jesus Christ dealt with the visual appeals by putting them behind him, out of his sight. He kept his line of vision pure. And he is our example. 
If you don't put visual appeals to sin behind you, then you will fall into them. If Jesus needed to put the visual appeals behind him to overcome temptation, how do you think you can expect to overcome when you keep the visual appeals before your eyes? Even Jesus didn't do that. Didn't trust in himself that he had enough strength to overcome temptation without putting those behind him. Friend, if you can't overcome sin unless you remove the evil from your eyes. And if you look at your history, you'll find this pattern in every fall. You didn't keep your eyes off of the evil thing. Do you see how important it is to keep your eyes pure? To keep your vision pure? Oh, but I'm stronger than that, you say. Well, Jesus wasn't. And you are not either. Jesus broke off the visual contact. And if you don't break it off, then you cannot do better than he did. And if you refuse to break off visual contact, then tell me again, why is it that you call him Lord at all? Oh, how men and women think they can play with fire and not be burned. How foolish. God's provided protection. We read that in the scripture. He'll not suffer you to, he'll make a way to escape. And the way to escape is to turn your eyes away. The protection is to keep your eyes pure. God's protection is given in Jesus' command about keeping your eyes pure. In Matthew 5 and also Proverbs 56, 25, lust not after her beauty in thine heart, neither, neither let her take thee with her eyelids. Those who don't keep their eyes in purity, they do sin, they do fall. 2 Peter 2, 14, having eyes full of adultery and that cannot cease from sin, there's, there's no even comma between those things in in the, in, the, in the rendering here. Enticing unstable souls. They have a heart trained in covetous practices and are accursed children. The ones who can't keep their eyes from adultery, they also can't cease from sin and they're accursed children. If you want something better than that for your life, then you ask God to help give you strength to keep your eyes where they should be. 1 Corinthians 10, 13. But with the temptation will also make the way of escape that you may be able to bear it. The way of escape is to put those evil things behind you as Jesus did. But if you choose to maintain your visual appeal, then you've abandoned the way of escape. The Lord Jesus used this same way of escape with Peter. Would you hold your finger here and then turn to Matthew 16, 22. <clears throat> Satan used... Jesus' closest friend, Peter, to tempt Jesus. Peter was on the road with Christ, but not abiding with him in his heart at this moment in time, at least. And Satan launched the very same temptation. You don't have to go to the cross. You don't have to die. There's an easier way. <laughs> Matthew 16, 22. Actually, verse 21. From that time forth began Jesus to show unto his disciples how that he must go unto Jerusalem and suffer many things of the elders and chief priests and be killed and be raised the third day again. And here Satan launches this same temptation, round two. Then Peter took him and began to rebuke him, saying, Be it far from thee, Lord, this shall not be unto thee. Peter in his heart, he thinks that he's got a good motive, but he's really Satan's, uh, Satan's messenger right now. 
People often today think they have a good motive, even when they're Satan's messenger as well. And so Peter took him. And the drawing out of the, the scene is that Peter took Jesus apart, aside separately. So Jesus and Peter are having this face-to-face -face discussion, apart from the rest of the disciples. And then in verse 23, But he turned and said unto Peter, Get thee behind me, Satan. Does those words sound familiar? Well, because they should be there, right out of Luke. Thou art an offense unto me, for thou savorest not the things that be of God, but those that be of men. Jesus turned. Do you see that in verse 22? Or verse 23, but he turned. And Strong says that, that means to turn, once, turn your back on someone. So Jesus was facing Peter, having this discussion with the disciples elsewhere behind him. When Peter brings up this same appeal, Jesus turns his back to Peter and he looks at the disciples and he speaks to Peter with a back to him. This is supported in Mark 8.33 also. Similar details, Mark 8.33. But when he had turned, this is a different word, it means to turn oneself around. When he had turned about and looked on his disciples, he rebuked Peter, saying, Get thee behind me, Satan, for thou savorest not the things that be of God, but the things that be of men. You and I probably have both wondered, I have, I know, wondered, why does it give the detail of turning right there? And, it's all, and it becomes clear when we see it in the light. Jesus' temptation in the wilderness. He turned to put any visual appeal behind him. The Bible's perfect in its account of helpful details. God reveals those. They're so important. It's, every word's been through a furnace of fire, purified seven times. Every word, is, there's meaning to it. You may not know the meaning of this or that one or the importance of it, but little by little, the Lord teaches us. So Jesus overcame this temptation by keeping his line of vision pure and by pointing to scripture as the authority for his life again. Luke 4, 8, for it is written, thou shalt worship the Lord thy God and him only shalt thou serve. That comes from Exodus 34, 14, the first half of it. And then, and then that passage, Exodus, ends with, for the Lord thy God is a jealous God, which roughly equates to the second part. Him only shalt thou serve. To render religious service or homage or to worship. But that's it equates basically to the fear, to fearing the Lord in the Old Testament. Jonah said, I fear the Lord. That it basically equates to I serve the Lord or I obey the Lord. Jesus is saying, My rule of life, the law that I abide by is scripture, God's word, and I will not deviate from it. Thou shalt worship the Lord thy God, and him only shalt thou serve. To bow down to worship anything other than God, no matter how small of a bow, no matter how short of a moment, no matter how secret of the situation, is to depart from Scripture. It's to hate God. The three Hebrew boys would rather die than bow down to Nebuchadnezzar's golden statue, and they were willing to do so. And others, so many others, have faced the same fate. Some lived and some died. And if you want, want eternal life, then you must be armed with the same mind. If you don't know God and are sold on Jesus above all things, then you will fall. A partial or paltry devotion to God cannot stand in the day of temptation. So for you and me, Satan will bring temptation. He'll bring something that you have an affinity to, something that you want in your heart, whether good or evil. With Jesus, it was good. With most people, it's evil. That's, that, that they're tempted with. And your temptation won't be so great. Satan won't offer you all the kingdoms of the earth. 
Satan had so much at stake with Jesus that he offered the full spread of what he had available to offer. But for you, you're a smaller fish, so Satan will tempt you with some lesser amount, but it'll be something that's, that you think is a really good deal, a bargain. Maybe a job promotion for indiscretions at work. Maybe an offer for some encounter that appeals to the lust of the flesh. Oh, he'll bring it right to you. Parade it right before your eyes. Satan tempted Jesus with something that Jesus had affinity for, and he'll tempt you with something that you have affinity for. In an area that you have a known track record for sin, he's got your number. He knows what you like. He knows what your weaknesses are. James 1.14, but every man is tempted when he is drawn away of his own lust and enticed. He was walking the righteous path, but then he gets drawn away because of the thing in his heart and enticed. James 1.15, then when lust has conceived, it brings forth sin, and sin, when it is finished, brings forth death. If there's sin in any of your affections in your heart, Satan will go after that. But even to a sanctified heart, he'll still bring some temptation and parade it in front to try to lure the person in. But the difference is that for the sanctified heart, there's no hook that Satan already has into, into the heart. There's nothing like what Jesus says, he has nothing in me. That's what happens with the sanctified heart. The Satan has nothing in them. And so he tries with the hooks, but they don't stick. They are wedged in the heart of that person. And like Jesus, it'll come at a moment that you're at your weakest point. And he'll use visual appeal as greatly as he can, just like he used with Jesus. And like with Jesus, there'll be an understanding of secrecy, the act done in secret. Nobody else will know, but the true cost is hidden in the fine point. You don't have time to read all the fine print, to read it and understand it in detail, to understand the implications in that split-second decision when you're tempted. And if you're not sober and vigilant, then you'll fall like a wet rag. Proverbs 7.22, immediately he went after her as an ox goes to the slaughter or as a fool to the correction of the stocks till an arrow struck his liver. As a bird hastens to the snare, he did not know it would cost his life. The true cost is your life. Why? Because the wages of sin is death. Oh, you probably have been brought up to think that that's for the unbeliever. No, that's for you. You choose to sin the wages of your sin is death also. And, and eternity to follow. Temptation number one, provide for your own needs. Temptation number two, take the easy way. And temptation number three, force God's hand. Luke 4, 9, And he brought him to Jerusalem and set him on a pinnacle of the temple and said unto him, If thou be the Son of God, cast thyself down from hence. For it is written, He shall give his angels charge over thee to keep thee. And in their hands they shall bear thee up, lest at any time thou shalt dash thy foot against a stone. So we have a people. In Jerusalem, it says, he brought him to Jerusalem. Well, that's the center of the Jewish known world. There's no other place where there's a greater density of population of Jewish people than Jerusalem. So we have a people. Satan brings him to a people. The center of God's people, certainly there were crowds around there. This is the temple. And not just there, but he brings him to a pinnacle. And you can't get any higher. It's from what they say. It's 164 feet above the ground, about 15 stories. 
And then Satan gives a promise. If you're the son of God, then his angels will keep you safe. It comes from Psalm 91, 11 and 12. A people and a pinnacle and a promise. And Satan pulls it all together and offers it, offers it to Jesus as a good idea. Psalm 91. Maybe you could go ahead and turn there. Keep your finger here and turn to Psalm 91 if you would please. <clears throat> so you can see the context. Because there's a lot of a lot of good understanding that comes with that. <clears throat> Psalm 91, verse 9. Because thou hast made the Lord, which is my refuge, even the most high, to be thy habitation. So because of this, there shall no evil befall thee, neither shall any plague come nigh thy dwelling. For he shall give his angels charge over thee to keep thee in all thy ways. They shall bear thee up in their hands, lest thou dash thy foot against the stone. Thou shalt tread upon the lion and adder, the young lion and the dragon thou shalt trample under feet. And then it changes to God speaking, God the Father. Because he has set his love upon me, therefore will I deliver him. I will set him on high because he has known my name. He shall call upon me and I will answer him. I will be with him in trouble. I will deliver him and honor him. With long life will I satisfy him and show him my salvation. You see, because he has made the Lord to be his refuge, his dwelling place, and because he has set his love upon me, therefore I will deliver him. And Satan's tapping into that promise saying, see, it's a done deal. You'll be, you'll be protected in this thing. The expected result, what would happen if he were, if Jesus were to do this, to throw himself down? Some people say, well, he would be recognized as the Messiah. I think there's probably a good chance of that. There's some, there's some good to that, some good understanding. People would worship him, possibly. If a man fell from the pinnacle of the temple, 164 feet, they fell to the temple floor and wasn't hurt, Fell from the sky, seemingly. That would be kind of similar to the story of the statue of the false goddess Diana of the Ephesians. It fell from the sky. And people would surely gather around that tradition, that oral tradition or that story. And that person may be worshipped. It may prove his sonship. And probably what Satan was going at is prove your sonship. You have this special connection to God. Prove it. Psalm 91 says so. That he will rescue you. And there's no better way to prove your sonship. And so in the narrative, there's some more that we see. It's that the temptation is about who is serving who. This, this temptation is to pervert the order of religion. Instead of, I serve God, this, this temptation changes it to be flip-flopped. God serves me. And don't we see that today? Right, if you, if you haven't listened to the Praise and worship songs that are, that are put out there today, listen closely to the lyrics and you'll find this thought buried in many of them. There's a Christmas song that we rejected a couple years ago and it's titled this, We Are the Reason. Do you see why we rejected it? It's, this is to pervert the order of religion. It's as if Satan was saying, Jesus, you seem to have this special bond to God. Because you're his only begotten son, all that. So use that special connection. There's horsepower in that. You can get much work out of God using that special connection. 
throw yourself down, certainly God will send his angels to rescue you. You won't even hurt your foot. It's going to cost you nothing. Something about no broken bones, I remember, and something like that, if I remember correctly. And it'll prove your sonship. Make God to be your lapdog, not vice versa. Make God to serve you. Make religion about you. Make you to be the central figure in, in religion. Jesus would have covenant blessings. It's, Satan would be, he was trying to lead Jesus into this thought process. I have covenant blessings. No matter what I do, God will perform his part of the covenant. Don't we hear that so often? God will never, he'll perform his part no matter how you act, no matter what you do. God's the one who's faithful in this equation. God will perform his part of the bargain. Jesus, he'll protect you no matter what you do or how you behave. Jesus responds in verse 12. And Jesus answering said unto him, it is said, thou shalt not tempt the Lord thy God. And when the devil had ended all the temptation, he departed from him for a season. Thou shalt not tempt the Lord thy God. Jesus' response was quick and it was to, to the point to the scripture. Pointed again to the scripture. This is my rule of life and I will not budge. You shall not test God. That's what happened to the children of Israel in the wilderness. They, test, they put God to the test. For 40 years they kept doing it over and over. Treating God like their lapdog in the wilderness. We want quail, we want water, we're tired of waiting. Do this for us, do that for us. They put God to the test and all of their carcasses were scattered in the wilderness because of that except for the two. No, you shall not test God, you shall not force his hand. That voids the love part of Psalm 91. Somebody who has a love for God would not put him to the test. They would not treat him like a lapdog, like a servant in the relationship. No, you shall not make God here to be your servant. You shall not tempt the Lord thy God. Temptation number one, provide for your own needs. Temptation number two, take the easy way. Temptation number three, force God's hand. And then it ends that the devil departed from him for a season and Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit into Galilee and there went out a fame of him through all the region round about. 1 Peter 5, 8 through 9, be sober, be vigilant because your adversary the devil is a roaring lion walketh about seeking whom he may devour whom resist steadfast in the faith. So who are those? That's such a good scripture, 1 Peter 8 and 9. 1 Peter 5, 8 and 9. Would you, would you turn there, please? 1 Peter 5, 8. 1 Peter 5, 8. Be sober. Be vigilant. Because your adversary, the devil, as a roaring lion, walketh about, seeking whom he may devour whom resist steadfast in the faith, knowing that the same afflictions are accomplished in your brethren that are in the world. But the God of all grace, who hath called us unto his glory, eternal glory, by Christ Jesus, after that ye have suffered a while, make you perfect, establish strength, and settle you. 
and be glorified in him forever and ever. So who are those that are susceptible to Satan's devouring jaws? He's walking about seeking whom he may devour. Who are those that are susceptible? Well, it's in verse 8. Those that are not sober, those that are not vigilant. Those that are not sober, that's to not be aware or vigilant to be watching. We're to be watching and waiting for Christ the Lord. And we're to resist him and be steadfast in the faith. So temptations endure for a time. But you must endure longer. Jesus spent 40 days in the wilderness. And at the end of those days, Satan departed from him. And that's how temptation always goes. If you don't fall, it will feel like It'll feel like you're going to fall and you're going to cave and you're going to give in. But all of those are threats. There's nothing that can happen to you. All Jesus did was say no three times in a row. That's it. He didn't take any other action except for to say no. He turned his back visually. He quoted scripture. He knew his Bible. But at the end of the day, he just said no three times in a row and Satan left, for, left him. And the same will happen with you. All you have to do is say no. And if you say no long enough, then you'll find that Satan departs from you. James 1, 2, Blessed is he that endures temptation, for when he has been tried or approved, then he shall receive the crown of life which the Lord has promised to those that love him. Temptation is a proof of whether you love God, whether you love Christ. And if you do, you'll certainly reach forth into his grace to receive strength to help in time of need. And you'll hold on to your no for long enough until Satan leaves. The Lord Jesus was stuck in that temptation. He had to endure that trial of temptations but at the end of that temptation, the devil must leave him. <clears throat> God had given Satan a boundary on how long the temptation would be allowed to go, or to what extent that it would, uh, Satan would be allowed to tempt him. Satan was not allowed to touch Jesus' flesh, as it happened with Job, or his immediate family, as it happened with Job. And it appears that Satan was not allowed to tempt Jesus for any longer than 40 days, so he used all of it every day of that 40 and Satan surely went to the full extent of temptations that he was permitted to do. And after that, Satan left. And that's how it'll go with you too. James 4, 7, Therefore submit to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. He's on a leash. He can't go one step beyond what God the Father has allowed him to do. And God the Father has only allowed him to tempt in order to prove your love and so you could come forth with flying colors with the crown of life having proven your love for him. And, then, and sooner or later, the temptation, the temptation will end. It must end. It's not permitted to go an extended period of time with you as it wasn't with Jesus. Whatever the duration that the Lord allows, he will give you strength to uphold if you are willing to hold up under that temptation, to not fall, to not stumble, to not give in. And we'll make a way to escape. And if you have to endure through the whole thing, then, then part of that escape is that Satan will leave you. He will flee from you to run away. 
And Jesus' temptation, Satan used scripture, a perversion of scripture to tempt Jesus to sin. And don't you know that Satan's kingdom will do the same with you? He'll give you perverted versions of the text. He'll give you perverted understanding of the text, perverted doctrinal systems that distort scripture here and truth over there. Oh, he will, he will indeed. The angel of light that comes to you will sound like he's so close to being spiritually accurate in his temptation to sin. It did with, it did with the Lord Jesus. Satan used scripture on Jesus. And how will you endure Satan's temptation if you don't know your Bible? With what will you fight with if you don't have the sword of the Spirit? If Satan can't get you to sin without scripture, then he'll try to get you to sin with scripture. Do you know how many professing believers, whether they're actual Christians or not, are slaves to sin because they somebody used the Bible to tell them that they have the allowance or the right to continue to sin? Bad doctrine, they used, Satan used scripture to justify a sinful lifestyle. Use scripture to do that. How terrible is that? If he can't get you to fall without scripture, then he'll try to get you to sin with scripture. Because either way, is just as effective as separating the person from the love of God. They get you to sin through the lust of the flesh, through the lust of the eyes, through the pride of life. And if Satan's kingdom can't get you to, can't get you to sin outside the church, then he'll try to get you to sin inside the church. And Jesus continued temptation. Satan used Jesus' closest friend to tempt Jesus to sin. Peter and Jesus' longtime friends, day and night for three years together. Jesus was always with Peter, except for when he went to prayer, where he communed with God the Father. And Satan tempted Jesus using Peter to derail him from God's plan. Peter was deceived. Far from loving, Peter was, became the instrument of Satan. And in that instant, Jesus saw Satan. So until that moment, the Lord Jesus and Peter and the disciples were having a conversation and then it shifted over to just Jesus and Peter. But in that moment, the Lord Jesus saw someone else pull up a chair and join the conversation and that one was Satan. And he was tempted in that moment. He was presented with the pathway that was different from what scripture said about himself. And that moment, something stirred in his heart. He recognized spiritually, this is not the path of God. He felt something different that allured him, that tempted him to let him, to tempt him to let his guard down, to be led by Peter's suggestion. Otherwise, why would he have reacted so strongly to it? Tempted to concede to a life of ease, a life without suffering, a long life, a different life than what Scripture told him he was to walk. <clears throat> And don't you know that Satan's kingdom will do the same with you too? He'll send a friend, a close friend, a long-time friend, just like with Jesus, with an unsanctified heart. They think they're loving you, but they're deceived. Every unsanctified heart is deceptive and desperately wicked. They don't even realize that the hand of Satan has entered into their thoughts and desires and is guiding their words. 
Bible says, trust not in a friend, nor put confidence in her that is in thy bosom, you know. Oh, don't trust even the dearest friend. If Jesus had done that, there would have been no cross. But always be on guard. God's protection is given in Jesus' teaching in Matthew 10, 37. He who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me, and he who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And the protection is is, is that couched within that is every person, no matter how close they are to you, has an evil heart, an unsanctified heart, unless they've come to Christ and they're sanctified and, and they're living as Christ would live in this world. And that evil heart, if you let that influence you, it will lead you astray. If you love that one more than Christ the Lord, you will go astray. Because of that, Jesus didn't trust himself to any man because he knew what was in man. The being of sin that will lead him to sin. Did Jesus trust Peter? Not any farther than he could throw Peter. <clears throat> and a friend, a trusted person, will you trust them? No, you need to trust the Lord Jesus Christ. And when something feels different, when you sense something a little bit different, just something a little bit off, a slight leading or inclination or allurement that's in a path that's not the path that God has for an obedient, faithful believer, you need to run away. Jesus overcame through all his temptations. He overcame and he was able to say, in John 8, 29, and he that sent me is with me, for the Father has, left, has not left me alone, for I do always those things that please him. And later he said, be of good cheer, I have overcome the world. Jesus overcame all his temptations, so he was able to say those things. I do always those things that please him, and I have overcome the world. And for you, think it not strange concerning the fiery trial, which is to try you as though some strange thing happened to you. Don't you know what happened to Jesus also? He's our example and he's our role model. And only by the fear of the Lord does one depart from evil. The fear of man can only drive a person to devise a more shrewd plan to partake of their sin. The fear of man cannot turn you away from sin. It can only hide the inclinations and the outgrowth of a path of sin from those that would otherwise warn you. That's what the fear of man does. But the fear of God, a person departs from all forms of evil, even if they're in the wilderness, with nobody else watching. Only by the fear of the Lord will someone depart from evil. First Peter 1 6. Wherein you now greatly rejoice, though now for a season, if need be, you are in heaviness through manifold temptations. There's a rejoicing that happens through those manifold temptations, manifold being many, through those temptations, is, is if you abide in Christ and he upholds you through it all. Matthew 26, 41, watch and pray that you enter not into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. Matthew 6, 13, and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. God, you are able to lead us in a way that's not into temptation. Keep our feet on the straight and narrow path that we would not even turn our eyes to look upon the path of temptation. But, but many will fall away. Luke 8, 13, they on the rock are they which when they hear receive the word with joy. 
and these have no root, but for a while believe, and in time of temptation fall away. But the good news is, Second Peter 2, 9, the Lord knows how to deliver the godly out of temptations, and to reserve the unjust unto the day of punishment. To be punished. There's only two outcomes of temptation. That you would bear, bear up underneath it. That you would remain strong and stand fast and would not fall. And you would be delivered out of temptations. The Lord knows how to deliver the godly out of temptations to not fall. But to, also he knows how to reserve the unjust unto the day of judgment. To be punished. But maybe you say, you don't know how hard it is to not enter into temptation. Well, I know that by God's grace, you're able to successfully endure it. Because he, like the scripture, 1 Corinthians 10, 13, there is no temptation taking you but such as common to man. But God is faithful who will not suffer you to be tempted above that you are able, but will with the temptation also make a way of escape that you may be able to bear. God is not trying to get you to fall. He is trying to get you to succeed. So our primary scripture in James 1.12, Blessed is the man that endures temptation, for when he is tried, he shall receive the crown of life, which the Lord has promised to them to love him. And some people say this is, this is looking at heaven. When you're tried, then at the end of all your days, the trying of all your days, then you'll get a crown of life in heaven. And you certainly will, if you're faithful to the Lord, you'll get a crown, a crown of righteousness to all the love has appearing. But this seems to be the text, the, the context, it seems to be in the here and now. When he is tried, indicates that there's an end to it. It doesn't say at the end of life he will receive, but when he is tried, he shall receive the crown of life. Tried when he's accepted. So in the ancient world, bankers made coins and they would put the gold into a, a mold, the right, the right weight of gold, and then, and then um, melt it and put it, and put it in there as molten um, gold or silver, and then um, go ahead and shave off the edges just for a, a clean edge. And then some of them would shave that too far in order to get some of the weight back, the weight of gold back. But this word, when he has tried, is used of those that were proven to, they had proven themselves that they always gave a coin of the correct weight. When he is tried, when he's proven and accepted, then he'll receive the crown of life. The context seems to be here. After Jesus ended his temptations, then he went in the power of the Spirit. All he did was say no three times. And that's all you have to do too, is hold fast to your guns. No scripture, stand on scripture, remain faithful to God. Three, say, just say no and when the temptation ends, if you, you just say no and then endure. And when the temptation's over, then the Lord will give you a crown of life because you will have proved your love for him. All you need to do is say no and endure. Blessed is he that endures temptation, for when he is tried, he shall receive the crown of life. And will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, Thank you for your word. Thank you for your truth. Please, O oh Lord, give everyone here, every one of us, give everyone here the endurance to stand fast. We know that you've made it available, but make it available in each person's mind that they, each person would stand fast, would endure through the temptation, when whatever and whenever and from whomever Satan brings it, in order that they could receive the crown of life 
and after that, crown of righteousness in heaven. Heavenly Father, make each person to stand strong in the faith to be established. That each person would know you and walk with you. We thank you for every person here, Heavenly Father. And please, strengthen each one to overcome. Give each one discernment to see when temptation comes, just like the Lord Jesus Christ had. Give each one understanding to, to see how it's, how temptation, how, even how slight it may seem, or from whom it may come that it's trying to derail them from a path of righteousness. Please, O oh Lord. And we'll give you glory and honor now and forever in Christ's name. Amen.